Thank you for pressing play, swimmers and swimmers. I'm Garrett McCaffrey, and joining us today is the associate head coach of the Stanford women, Tracy Slusser, and this is the Swim Swam podcast. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, at this point, we kind of have uh, the perspective of looking back on the season, and I guess I'm just curious and kind of starting out, uh, how, how would you analyze your, your season this past year? Wow, it was nice to be back in the mix. Um, I think everybody had an interesting experience coming out of COVID, and so I think we learned to appreciate the little things of just being together and getting to be at that NCAA championship in an environment where – I mean, just getting to see your colleagues, getting to see our athletes race, um, you know, was was awesome all around. I, we kind of reflect upon the season as Greg and I talked about it, and we're definitely not disappointed by any means, but we're sure not satisfied. Um, I think there were definitely some areas that we felt we could be better, um, but I think that's the fun of, of what we do. Um, but it was definitely nice to kind of get the group back moving in the same direction, get the team back together. We're a young team, which kind of gets you excited to think about the future, uh, but definitely sat down and kind of reflected on some areas we, we know we can be better. Yeah, if you look at the overall uh, team finish, you guys jumped up a bunch of spots, finishing third, and like you said, right in the mix. Um, you and Texas paddled it out to the very end um, mm -hmm. for that second spot. Um, what would you consider some of the successes of the season as a whole? It doesn't necessarily have to be at NC2As, but looking back in that analysis, how would you um, categorize some of the successes? What would you look at as some of the successes? I think getting into some training blocks was a big success coming out of what we came out of where we were, uh, you know, we had to isolate if they went home for the holiday during COVID. So like they came out of Christmas break and had to sit in their dorms for 10 days. And so that kind of, we had this like awesome training session and then we had to kind of detrain into that. Um, and that obviously affected us that last season. But I think this season, being able to kind of really get into training camp at OTC, get into some good rhythm going into our dual meet season in January, where we have those back-to-back Pac-12 dual meets, um, which is always a lot of fun for us to kind of get up and get racing and just try to build from meet to meet and be better and better as we as we make our way to postseason with our Pac-12 championships and NCAAs. So it felt really, really good about the body of work that we were able to put together. Um, felt good about being able to kind of bring the group together. It's a young group. We felt there was a ton of maturity in our freshman class. Obviously, our freshman class was kind of a combo class of the class that deferred before um, the COVID year and then obviously the true freshman this year. And so we felt there was a ton of experience and just excitement that that group brought to our team. Um, I felt like our leaders, you know, it was kind of a cool spot because we didn't even our seniors this year, they're not all done. So for them to have the experience they've had, get to go to their, this is their second NCAA championship as seniors. Um, so to be able to kind of experience that in its entirety and know they still have another year left, um, kind of left some excitement as we kind of look to the future. If you have to dive into some of those training blocks, um, let's kind of get details because I think that's what people really like in these podcasts. What would you say you did too much of or too little of? 
Yeah, Greg and I sat down uh, last week and kind of went over some of the areas that like, you know, I look at it as like areas that I can be better, um, things I did really well this season, things that we can all be better at collectively. And I think we did a really good job um, at OTC being able to challenge them physically and then also allowing them space to recover. Um, I think there are times that we get back on campus that I feel that I sometimes uh, pull back a little too much in areas when it comes to aerobic threshold. Um, and I think so that's an area that I think we can push a little bit longer on as we move into that phase um, before we go into our dual meet season. Um, I think we did a good job of incorporating some front speed work um, going into that dual meet season. And is there an opportunity for us to incorporate a little bit of that in the fall um, before we go into our mid-season invite? So there's different areas and different pockets. It's one of those things where we get to do this for a chunk of time and then evaluate ourselves. And so it's kind of like the sweet spot of kind of getting to like learn and grow and then redo and take what you want and move forward. And so definitely some areas that we want to kind of continue to build on and some areas we want to make change to. All right. I want to keep kind of diving into that. Just so we understand, you guys went to OTC in December? Mm -hmm. We go December 26th. Um, a little shorter trip for us this year. We were there until the third this year because we start school um, pretty early in the, in the winter. When, when you say you were able to balance, uh, you know, pushing some of their limits and also recovering, what does recovery look like? Is that a practice? Is that a day off? Is that a, a like a yoga or is it, what does recovery that you implemented look like? So what we love about the OTC is recovery happens naturally up there because there isn't a whole lot to do. So they hang out in their PJs and they eat really well in the dining hall and they lounge out and play games um, and they watch Netflix and they, you know, just kind of recover in between practices. And they also do a really good job um, of kind of rolling out before practice, doing activation, taking time after practice to stretch and do those things that they need to do. So we've always felt like up there when we take the distractions away from school, um, social, just kind of the day-to-day -day life that, you know, college um, athletes are in most of the year, like up there, that recovery period, like just happens naturally. And mentally, they're able to kind of be, you know, incorporate the entire week of work and be like, okay, it's a double day. All right. I know how to manage a double day and here's my nap day. And they don't have the distractions um, that obviously come with our everyday life here on campus. You talked a little bit about pushing their aerobic threshold and maybe doing that a little bit more. And as a sprint coach, I completely relate. I feel like those are areas um, that sometimes I'm worried about breaking them. I don't know. You know, it's not the stuff they like and they, they're really quick to complain about that kind of work. Um, can, can you talk just a little bit more about uh, what that looks like or how you learned that lesson? Yeah, I think we, we do our best to kind of analyze who's in the water and want to give each person what they need. And you kind of learn quickly who you can kind of like, okay, this person I, I know is my beacon of like where we're at with the group. And maybe this person's having a reaction of something else that's going on that day. And so when to adjust accordingly and when to kind of pull out, pull, pull aside and say, okay, we can push through this moment or, Hey, we need to pull back here. And I think making sure we're taking care of people coming out of, um, what we just came out of as an entire society the past two years has been the forefront of, of what we're doing. And I think there's times as coaches, we're like, okay, this is what we need physically, but are they ready mentally to handle that physically? 
And I think being able to come out of, um, come out of the years that we just had and be able to manage that a little bit better. I think they are standing on a little bit more solid ground. I think our relationships are stronger to be able to push them in those moments when, hey, I'm not having the best day and I still need to ask a lot of you in here because this is what your end result goals are. Um, and so it's just kind of managing those. And I think the more we can build relationships in person, the easier that's gonna be to be able to kind of know their like thresholds um, of capacity. And it's not just the physical capacity because physically they may be ready, but it may be a day that they just got crushed in an exam or something happened on campus that like mentally they're not able to kind of go to that place. And um, I need to be able to communicate with them on that and making sure we're not adjusting um, too often. Is that just a process of trial and error with each individual or are there cues that you're kind of looking for um, that you can, that kind of give you hints towards that? It, it's definitely a process of trial and error. I think I, I, someone I think about right away um, is she was a senior this year and she was one that just needed to get it out. I needed to give her a space to like tell me how, what, the, what was going on that day. And then she would get back in the set and be fine. You know, she didn't need me to pull her out. She didn't need me to adjust this, that she just needed me to listen to it. And then she got back in and she was able to do what she needed to do. Um, and so we developed kind of that system over time. Um, and that's them maturing and allowing them space to grow and realize like, hey, you know, I probably could have pushed a little further um, on that. And I know I can come back tomorrow and be better yeah. um, moving forward. Yeah. Let's dive into the physical side because I hear you loud and clear and I completely agree that it is, you know, individualizing for the person on that day and what their mm -hmm. best is. But can you give us an example of the threshold, the aerobic threshold sets that um, maybe you want to do a little bit more of going forward? I think, you know, with the group that, you know, I primarily have responsibility for, we'll kind of do 75s and hundreds, but I think pushing into the 125s, the 150s on, and being able to tell them that they can handle this, you know, back to back, you know, eight of them and we can go best average and do that on an interval that, you know, it is palpable and they can handle, um, but to be able to expect more of themselves. And we're going to build to that. Um, but I do think it's important. I, I think female sprinters need aerobic base, need aerobic capacity, need something to kind of stand on as we then introduce power and speed um, as we move forward. I think that's where a lot of the rest comes from is that body of work. And if we don't push them to that, then when we kind of try to come down, we don't see maybe the reaction to the rest um, as well. So an aerobic threshold set would always be fast or building to fast versus an aerobic set where you're maybe just trying to keep that heart rate consistent. Is that, is that how you approach it? Yeah. And tightening up the intervals as we move through when we want to kind of like really press and get them up past heart rate 20, we go, we go 10 second count. So up past a heart rate um, up 28 or 29. Yeah. How many days a week do you think you need to push that threshold and how many days a week do you need to just maintain that heart rate? I think that balance is different for different athletes. Um, I mean, even within the sprint group, I think there's people that can handle that more often than others. Um, and so that's definitely a balance. Um, but we, we definitely look at a Tuesday afternoon as kind of a more aerobic threshold day as we move through the season and that adapts, it adapts to VO2 max later in the season. Um, we always kind of work in some kick on that and loading before we go into fast stuff. Um, but I think that kind of varies throughout the season and, and who the, who the clientele is. Yeah. 
talked about speed work that you added in January, maybe looking mm -hmm. at doing that earlier in the season. And it, based on everything we just talked about, there's a challenge there, right? Yeah. When do you build that aerobic side? Um, and then when do you add that speed side? Do you think, um, I mean, going into next year, will your plan be to find a way to do it a little bit more together in the fall? Yeah. So definitely looking because we start a little bit later we don't get to start until september 6th um which is nice because then they get a nice long break after our summer season but so we always feel like a little bit of a okay we need to get hit the ball uh hit the ground running here so we definitely press the aerobic work we making sure we're doing things correctly we have some details that we want to make sure and some good habits as we're pushing that um but i do think there's opportunity as we head into invite to do some front speed work some fast burst um energy system stuff before we go into um into the, that in, invite in early november um i always feel like our last day of the meet is the best day of the meet and our 200s and our hundreds looked a heck of a lot better than our day one um, and obviously they get a little more, more rest as the meet goes on but what can we do to adjust that to make sure that our front end of that meet is is a little stronger and a little speedier um, and so i'd say the come end of October, early November, are there little places we can sprinkle in? Um, and not not in substitute of, but just like, you know, in a preset, can we add a little bit more front speed work and burst energy work um, so they can kind of start to feel those feelings before we get to kind of right before our invite. Can you give us an example of one of those presets? Yeah, so we, we did a lot of where we'd go nine times on a rack and they'd go, um, three kind of 10 seconds of burst kick where they just like on a board burst kick that's you know they do three of those and then they go 10 kicks under fast and back and then they'd go four of their kick count break out into one cycle or two cycles um and so we do kind of that on a on a tighter interval earlier in the season and then that interval would start to open up and then we come off the rack and mimic that kind of pattern of like just like all out kick to 12 and a half easy to the wall fast underwater for 10 kicks, easy to the wall, fast breakout, easy to the wall. And, you know, when you look at the body of work, it's not a lot, but it's like training that system earlier in the season and getting them to adapt to, you know what I mean? Being able to fire when they need to fire, even when they're tired, um, I think is important. And that's something we did a little bit more of in January. And I'd like to incorporate some in the fall. As it evolved into January um, and February and getting speedier, can you give us an example of how you would work on that front end speed in a full set, not just a preset maybe? Yeah, I think we'd elaborate on something like that and then go into where we would go uh, three times on a rack of three cycles. So something super, super just like add a lot of water on it. We're gonna do the rest interval at about a 45 second rest interval. And then we're coming off the rack swimming easy and then maybe we'll do a 75 where they build to speed and then we'll go into some 25s at full speed um and so we're you know getting the power from the rack being able to kind of flush that out a little bit being able to kind of put the stroke together and from a build and then kind of hitting the stroke fully um fully go for some sport short bursts of 25s great stuff great stuff mm -hmm. kind of a random question but like I think some coaches like doing the resistance just straight up with no equipment. And some coaches like to add paddles for yeah. 
that resistance worker even, which seems kind of counter. I had a coach call me out on it once, like, why would you put shoots on them and wear fins? But uh, I guess what's your preference on equipment on top of the resistance? I am known to just shout out, hey, you grab one paddle on the left hand. Um, hey, one fin over here. Like if I'm seeing something in their stroke that looks off balance, I may like throw something at them when it comes to gear to kind of find core connection or find stability. And then it's like, oh, okay, I hear what you're talking about. Um, I do love a lot of high tempo pull. Um, I think Simone taught us when she went through her hip injury that we used to kind of just pull for feel, pull for connection. Um, but we had to adjust. She couldn't kick a whole lot. And so we threw a pull bully on her and did stuff at 1.0. And like, it really, really helped core connection. If you can pull at high rate with no legs balancing you and you can keep your core nice and tight and your hips aren't sliding around um, and you can hold that water at that 1.0 tempo with paddles on, like you take it off and it's a lot easier to do that. And so I think we've definitely incorporated that more holistically. And she was one that would still do that even without the hip injury to set up her stroke. So when we would write power sets for her of being able to incorporate pull as part of that setup and not just smooth pull, but like power pull on the rack, off the rack. When you're switching from smooth pull to tempo pull, I'm assuming there's a tempo trainer, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then where do you focus on that? Because I feel like sometimes when you just increase the tempo, you lose the catch. How, where, where does tempo come from? I, tempo comes from, when we talk about core, we talk about core range of motion and making sure you can't over-rotate. And I think that's something we've pulled back on as you watch the hips at a high rate. Like it's a tick-tock, tick-tock. It's not a whoosh movement, you know? And so we're constantly talking about being able to isolate the core, being able to like the movement comes from here, but it's, it's, it's driven from here. Um, and so we, our focus is definitely from the inside out when we're adding tempo to things. I like that. And you're also touching on one of my other uh, strong opinions on rotation. Um, and I think Russell Mark has the perfect word for it. When he, when we were in COVID, he put out all of those great, you know, stroke analysis, um, I guess, tutorials, and he talked about the rotation being more of a pivot. Because if you rotate with those shoulders, I feel like that's half of my sprinter's problems is that those shoulders get too deep and then the elbow's too deep and then everything's too deep. And then they have to dig out of that and they end up just going up and down versus the drive forward. So um, I, I guess, how do you approach rotation? Because it sounds like I don't want to put my opinion into this interview. We want to hear what you have to say. But is that somewhat along the lines of how you're approaching it? Yeah. And it's funny how it's evolved. If you would look back when we started here 10 years ago, I was talking to Greg the other day, we used to do a ton of distance per stroke stuff. Like Monday mornings, I would like, I'd have that lower end group and I, we'd be like, all right, 30 strokes, long course. And, and I'm like realizing that I'm going to my afternoon power sets and being like, okay, that's counterproductive. What am I doing? And so we've really kind of gone in another direction. And I'm, when we're doing, you know, uh, aerobic work, long course, I'm not asking them to be at 40 strokes, you know what I mean, on hundreds on 120, but we are, I'm not necessarily putting caps on it. And like, let's pay attention to how efficient we are because there is that sweet spot of laying on it versus being able to kind of rotate and cross, cross body connection. And so we've definitely gone towards a tighter rotation in both freestyle and backstroke. 
um, and paying attention to what the hips are doing. So if I'm seeing something with the catch or I'm seeing something with their legs, I'm instantly gravitate towards what's happening with our rotation first. And if we can kind of make sure we have a solid rotation to what we're doing, then we can start tinkering with what the arms and legs are doing or if I'm seeing somebody off balance, um, but definitely tighter rotation as we move through. Yeah, I mean, his statistics were that the top level freestylers are going, you know, 35 degree rotation at most, which is not where most of the swimmers are naturally taught. I think we were all taught to really roll. And then backstroke, it's even less like 25 degrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you watch Nathan Adrian's like hips, you know what I mean? They're here, but his shoulders are what's kind of driving that stroke forward. And it was the same with when we're working with um, Simone and, and Leah and just kind of where do they drive the power from? Even Katie Ledecky, like she's not one that like, does a ton of hip rotation and her tempo is pretty high for a distance swimmer. And that's because she's like super connected from the catch to the opposite hip. Yeah. We used to have an underwater uh, f- footage and I don't know where it came from. It was like her and uh, sweets or somebody going side by side and she mm-hmm. was going fast. And I would just put it up on the big board when I was down at Phoenix swim club and just show people that the best distance swimmer in the world does not rotate her hips as much as you do. Yeah. <laughs> We're not seeing her back. We are not yeah. seeing that 90 degrees. And it is something that goes from, you know, Nathan is the ultimate. You look at all those guys in the, in the 50 and the 100 and their hips don't look like they move at all. But all the way up to, to Katie was a great example that I used to use because um, we had great footage of her um, that, you know, those hips are stable. Do you do, you do drills to work on that? Are you a drill fan? I am. I like, you know, I like a lot of uh, one paddle, one fin to kind of feel that power um, and placement. Um, they don't like it, but I, I've done some stick, you know what I mean? The, uh, and I got this from Rocket back when I was working at Arizona. But I think that makes you kind of close the hip quickly because if you're laying on that side and you have that stick out in front, you instantly sink. Um, and so I like playing around with that when we're doing kind of more. I, I talk about like, when we're doing low intensity drills, like what are low intensity drills that are actually beneficial versus like, Hey, you know, I can make the interval doing this drill and like, let's be really intentional with what we're doing. Um, and I think the stick helps to set that intention, uh, pretty quickly. And then I like, um, I like a lot of grab paddles. I'm a big grab paddle cause I think it definitely anchors the front of the stroke. And again, you can't lean on it too much when, when you're doing that. Um, is that but, just the stroke makers, but you're overgripping? I yep. call it overgrip. Okay. Yeah, we call it we call it grab. Same thing. Um, and so they'll incorporate a lot of grab stuff into their warm ups because they've definitely liked how that that feels. Um, so yeah, just kind of playing around. I, I don't. There's definitely some like we do the archer drill, right? Where you're like you're not opening up your hip all the way, and we kind of close it quickly. We'll do underwater recovery, one arm under, one arm over. Uh, both arms under but then we also just play I mean if I see something we'll be like I'm like hey try this throw this on you know what I mean okay does that how did that feel and um, so Greg and I will bounce some ideas off of each other that way but a lot of it is kind of just making stuff up on the fly as we're kind of gathering information as they're moving through the water yeah it's awesome this is great which is the fun part which is the creative part which is you know so yeah it's awesome so Transitioning into spring, what does spring look like for Stanford? Yeah, we're, we've got two getting ready for world um, champ trials. Taylor just had an awesome transition from 
uh, NCAA's two weeks and then, you know, to Canadian trials. And I'm so proud of her for going back into that arena and kind of just business trip, like doing exactly what she needed to do to put herself in good spots to, to have an impact this summer for Team Canada. So I'm really proud of her. Um, so then getting, getting those two ready for world champ trials. And then we have everybody else back in the water kind of getting on, this is what we call week 16. I think I mapped it out to nationals. And so just kind of really setting the tone, uh, we kind of slow played into it, took a couple weeks and then, um, now everyone's kind of back in the water, getting into a system and we haven't really broken up into groups. We did a power afternoon yesterday and everyone was together doing IM. And so it was fun to see some kids that don't ever swim breaststroke, do some breaststroke on the rack and just kind of just play around a little bit more. Yeah. I, I mean, that's what I'm curious about too, just how you kind of balance the groups and the training in the spring. Cause obviously they get a chance to kind of come off some importance, but you have people like Taylor who had to kind of turn right around. What was that? A three week turnaround between NC four week turnaround between four, four weeks. Yeah. How, did you bring her back up? Did she take any time off? Cause she had a great NCs. Congratulations on that as well. So great to see her smiling face and excitement after that 200 free win. Um, but was she able to take any time after um, NCs? Yes, she took a couple of days off and then we're, was back in Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, and I think Greg met her at the pool on that Saturday uh, after NCAAs and, you know, just kind of set the tone and she went back up a little bit and added some power work the following week and just kind of, you know, set, set her intention of what her expectations were of herself. Um, you know, looked at stroke, made sure we kind of were adapted to long course, um, stroke counts and rhythms and kind of got in our long course. And that's such a huge advantage we have is we get to swim long course all year. And so that transition is, is not as big as it could be. And so we feel really fortunate to have the water we do. Um, and yeah, she hit the ground running and she was up there by herself and checking in and, um, yeah, getting the job done. So we were really proud of her. What a pro. What a pro. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if weights are a big part of her regular training, but in a four week period, it's kind of tough to figure out, should we come back to weights? Should we not come back to weights? I feel like, you know, the double taper is, is this time of year. Everybody wants to know the secrets to the double taper. I feel like um, personally, we didn't do a great job with our double taper between conference and NICs is what we ended up going to. And I think the biggest thing is we didn't do the weights. We only had a week and a half, but in a four week stretch like that, does she come back on and does she go back into the weight room? I'm so Greg and coach Schneider had that conversation. I was out of town after NCAAs um, and our strength coach is fantastic. He's been with us now for eight years and he just is a, such a fan of the sport. And so I know they made some adjustments to her plan as she went back in there for a couple days before she left. And then, you know, we've already talked about getting her back in this week. Um, right oh. away. So making sure that, that, that almost prioritize her getting back in the water because she gets to take a little bit of a, a break before we kind of start to gear up for worlds for her. Cool. So now when you have a group coming into the spring and you have some people going to world, will, will the whole group go to world champ trials that? No. So it, Greg is kind of managing that plan. Um, you know, we'll go back and forth on that and kind of communicate. And then I'm kind of taking over the, the group that's kind of getting back in the water um, and looking forward to some meets this this spring, we've got Santa Clara, which is close. We're talking about going to LA, LA invite. Um, there's uh, another meet down in LA, I think in Irvine that we are looking at. 
and then um, obviously nationals. So we feel super fortunate that we're not going to have to travel a whole lot. Um, and world champ trials was an option for everybody that had cuts, but we just looked at it as like, if you're genuinely excited about trying to make, do something here, like let's go all in and do that. But it's just such a quick turnaround that like, if you don't have that internal, um, motivation on this, that let's kind of take advantage of, of what is ahead in this, this spring. Yeah. That's kind of what I wanted to ask next too. Cause I think a lot of college coaches struggle, um, with some athletes not having motivation in the spring um, and trying to understand where that is necessary and where that is laziness. And I think some people assume that at Stanford, everybody's A-type and driven and just going to be self-motivated. Um, but I assume that that's not necessarily the case. It, are, are you having trouble you know, motivating any group of the, of the ladies at this point? I, I talk to me in like two or three weeks. Um, <laughs> right now, I think they're excited to be back together. Um, and like I said, practices are kind of generic enough, yet kind of giving people the option to kind of press where they need to. Um, so they have a little bit more autonomy within, within the work that we're doing, knowing we're gearing up. Like this week, they're just doing two doubles. Um, and so they get Wednesday afternoon off, which is not the norm schedule. And then next week, we'll go into our full um, offering or kind of our full schedule for them. So I do think they enjoy being with one another. I do think that um, genuinely they're a group that, you know, maybe it doesn't feel great when they walk into practice, but like at the end, they're like excited that they worked hard. Um, and so I, I don't feel like a ton of my job is motivating people to work hard. Um, but, you know, everybody has their days and, and we all need kind of help from one another, but that's where the team comes in. Um, so I feel pretty fortunate that we work with a group of women that for the most part, like understands what, what it takes to get what they want out of the sport. Um, and so it makes it a lot of fun to kind of just come in and being able to kind of create challenges for them. So you don't have anybody that just says, Hey, I'm only doing eight hours. So that's it. There's nobody that's just kind of getting by like that. No, not currently. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And everybody competes. Um, you know, everybody has a schedule where they're competing spring and summer. We have a schedule that we'll put out now, whether or not it fits with people's class schedules or what they have going on. Like there may be like, okay, I can't do that one because of this, but you know, definitely would want them to be actively moving forward in the spring and summer. If, if we're not, we're, you know, you don't really ever stand still because people are, are moving forward. So if we can't put that energy and effort into the direction that we want to go, um, I think we're going to get passed up. So definitely creating a plan for them and then kind of adjusting as needed if individuals need different things. Does anybody go home to their club team in the summer? Traditionally, no. I think this summer we have a few more going. And I think Greg and I were talking about the other day and it may be, you know, coming out of COVID, they were used to being home a lot. I don't know. It's just, and we haven't had a normal summer here since 2019. Um, so that was our seniors only summer. No one has had a spring or summer here. That's been kind of status quo. Um, and so kind of really just painting that picture is going to be important of what it looks like and feels like. And it is, in my opinion, fun to be here in the summer. It's a little more laid back in between practices. Um, they usually spend time going to the beach a little bit more or going to a Giants game. Um, it's also an opportunity for kids to, uh, work on campus, work in labs, do research, work at the hospital, 
being in Silicon Valley, we're in the middle of startup city. So like we've had some people have awesome opportunities with GoPro and PayPal and still be able to work that around practice schedules. So we feel like there's a huge advantage. And I don't know about you, but my college summers, it was like you either swam or you worked. There was no real option to do both. And here at Stanford, there is a ton of opportunity to do both. So we've had pretty good. Most everybody stays. I think this summer we have a couple that are going to be going home and we have finals until second week in June. And so they're training with us, you know what I mean? All of April, all of May and into June before they, before they head home. That's awesome. You know, they're motivated. Um, Obviously they're high end talent wise. um, And I think a lot of people assume that your job at Stanford and Greg's job and even Dan and Neil as well, it's, it's easy because you get people who want to go to Stanford just to be at Stanford. Um, obviously, there's great coaches, but there's got to be some pieces that are challenging. There's got to be some, some hard parts of coaching at Stanford, just like any job in the world and any coaching job um, out there as well. Can, can you help give us some perspective on what some of the challenges are coaching at Stanford? I guess I don't, I don't look at it as challenges, but just like part of the job. Um, I think the kids that we have look here, like have high expectations of themselves. And a lot of times externally, there's high expectations put on them. Um, And so, you know what I mean? That adds a layer of pressure that adds a layer of expectations all around. And I think we all know that you know, patience is a virtue and sometimes it doesn't all happen exactly when you want it to. And so kind of teaching the process and that, you know, just because we're working really, really hard right now and we maybe didn't get everything we want in this one moment in time when it really would have been cool to have everything come together, it doesn't mean that we didn't get better. Um, And so when you have kids that have been used to being on the junior national team or national team or have expectations to, you know, make the next Olympic team or, oh, I should be on that or I should be on that, those shoulds carry a lot of weight. Um, And helping those kids manage that, helping us as coaches manage that um, is is a challenge that we see as a privilege. Um, And so making sure we're kind of having open, honest conversations about that. But there's, there's nothing easy about that you know, um, process. Uh, but it's something that we really respect out of the kids that we, we, we get here and look at Stanford. Yeah. I'm glad you kind of said the word pressure. Cause I kind of want to dive into that a little bit. Um, and let's start with just where pressure comes from. When you talk about the internal pressure, we'll start there. Um, mm-hmm. where do you think that internal pressure comes from or what, what is that in there? I think it's competitive and you can see it, you know, in people and like, honestly, it's what makes them great. They wouldn't be at the level they're at, you wouldn't be level the level you're at. All of us coaches have that internal pressure we put on ourselves to kind of show up every day and challenge ourselves to be the better version of ourselves so that we can push these people in front of us to do the things that they want to do. And so that intrinsic to me is, is, the lifeline of competitive sport and honestly in any avenue of, of life is that intrinsic motivation. And so those internal pressures can absolutely be positive forces. And we try to make sure we're keeping honest on that because it can definitely transition into another direction very quickly. Um, and so making sure we kind of have open and honest conversations with everybody on what does motivate you? Why do you want this? Is this going to, are these choices going to help you move towards that um, as you kind of look at what's important to you personally? 
and when the pressure becomes a little bit more external and I would imagine obviously in swimming parents is part part of that but I think at Stanford maybe even the fact that you have a lot of really talented ladies and most of them probably came from programs where they were the best or mm -hmm. even areas of the country where they were the best and now every single day they've got to go up against the best is that comparison um, that you're saying drives as part of that internal motivation but when you start to you know that competitive drive starts to look external and they're reminded every day that there are some really fast girls not only out there in the nc2a but right here on your team in the pool with you right now um is that something that you have to address with some of the athletes all of the athletes i think that's where we as coaches get to create that like team excitement around it and like look at i remember when we you know had katie draybot and um uh, Ella Easton as, uh, you know, in the fly group and being able to kind of write practices and have them push each other and Hannah Kukaruga And like, there's definitely an excitement around creating energy within the group. We, you know, they had the B crew, breaststroke crew and backstroke crew, they would battle which crew was the better crew. And so when you can create excitement around the talent within each pocket of the team, you know, it, it definitely creates a team environment that's a positive competitive place. Obviously, the day in, day out of that, we need to be aware of. And there are days where it's like, okay, this person should probably not swim this set next to this person. And that's okay. Let's have open and honest conversations about that. All right, today I'm not going in the first group. That's not what's going to be best for me in this set. Fine. All right, let's figure that out. Um, but I do think that energy can also be really, really exciting when you have, you know, world-class athletes all, all across the pool. I think somebody that really helped kind of set the tone on that is, is Katie, you know, she came in and didn't ask for anything and worked really, really hard and kind of took people with her. And, um, I think that helped kind of solidify the fact that like you can be the best in the world and, and still kind of come in every day with a humble attitude and still push your teammates and be seen as, as a peer amongst, amongst the group. Um, so I think we've done a good job as a program, creating a culture where, normalizes the fact that like, hey, you're really good and you want this too. Hey, I'm really good and I want this too. Let's work together to do that um, in a mutual respect in that way. Yeah, a great perspective on the day-to-day -day pressure and how you kind of um, take care of those issues on a day-to-day -day basis. Is it different at the competition? No, I haven't. I can't recall of a team championships where we had to pause to deal with a competitiveness within the team. I think when we're in those environments, what the fabric that we've been kind of breathing all year is about what we want to do as a group. And that's going to take all of us. And why not have, you know, multiple people on the podium and events? You know what I mean? Why not have the best relay we possibly put together? on the blocks. And um, obviously you want people to want those spots, but it's not because they, they wish ill of anyone else around them. Um, and so, yeah, I can't think of a time where we've ever had to navigate kind of internal turmoil in that regard. Yeah. So we're going to transition a little bit to, to more about hopefully you and, and your coaching and yeah. You know, obviously with swimmers, it's easy to see growth with results, you know, and there's other ways. I don't want to minimize that results are the only way that growth happens for swimmers. But as coaches, 
um, growth looks a little different. And especially for yourself with all the success that you've had, I mean, uh, you and Greg had a dynasty. Uh, I mean, it was a great run and you guys have created Olympic champions and NC2A champions as a team and everything else. Um, and that can't be the case every single year, every single cycle. So in your mind, um, and I know I'm asking this because I know that you have a very healthy perspective on a lot of this stuff. Where does, where does growth come from, um, in your career? I think it's, it's the more I get to know myself, uh, the more avenue I get to then open up and, and be of service of those around me. And so any time I can spend on like diving into something that maybe just feels a little off or like, you know, Hey, that felt really good. Let me figure out why, you know, and really learning about myself. Um, in 2018, I, I hired a kind of professional consultant for myself. And I would say that investment um, has paid itself in dividends. I can't tell you a day that goes by that I don't think of some of the things that we flushed out and some of the things that we talked about when it comes to core values and just making sure that my actions, my words, what I'm, who I am kind of always revolves around those, that foundation of core values. And that has changed, um, changed how I think about it. And honestly, it's, it's definitely projected a, where I can see a most sustainable life in this sport in, in what I do. Um, so I think for me, it's all about making sure I stay connected to those core values, stay connected to making sure I'm, I'm holding myself accountable to those values um, and following up when, when I'm not, you know, we all need that place where it's like, okay, I've got to check in with myself and showing myself compassion when, when I do need to kind of adjust um, or notice I am, I am kind of recurring some mistakes that I want to make sure I change. Do you feel like that growth is all possible and all the growth that you would need is possible within the role that you're in right now at Stanford? That's an, that's a very uh, targeted question without asking the question there. Well, I'll Gary. follow it up with that one. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I feel that I still get to grow every day um, in the role that I'm in. I think Greg allows me, you know, in this position as associate head coach over the past 10 years, we've, we obviously know each other really, really well. Um, we know our strengths, we know our weaknesses. Um, you know, he allows me space to kind of still try new things out and make mistakes and hey, how'd that go? Okay, I saw that coming, but hey, you know what I mean? You gotta figure that out. Um, and so I appreciate that respect he's given me and it's something that we kind of talk openly about. Um, so yeah, I, I do feel that we get a new group in every year. It's like we get to start over. So I don't ever feel like it doesn't ever feel mundane. You know, it, it definitely feels like there's something new and fresh every single, every single cycle. Um, so yeah, I feel like the opportunity to be here at Stanford is definitely something I still feel a lot of growth in. Yeah. You have to be at least approached about a lot of other jobs though. Would there be like something that um, could could pull you away from this one? Yeah, I'd say there's definitely, you know, I'm the kind of person that like opportunity, I'm never not gonna like look at things. Um, I think that's the reason I'm in the sport. That's the reason I took the leap coming from Purdue and jumping into Texas A&M and moving to College Station as a 25 year old knowing nobody. Um, that's still in me. The idea of change doesn't scare me. It, it excites me. 
Um, but at the same time, I am so much more than what you see on the pool deck. And there are so many different layers to my life that are very, very important to me. And I would say coaching is definitely not the most important piece of my life. You know, it's, it's definitely my husband and my family. And so any decision is going to be made with putting them at the forefront. Um, I feel so fortunate that I get to do a job that I absolutely love day in, day out. Um, and my kids are in a wonderful school and my husband has an amazing job. So yeah, it would take quite a bit to kind of make you know, make me really look at everything and, and make a move, but I will never, you know, say no or not look at an opportunity. Good stuff. Tracy, I really appreciate all this. I feel like we covered some in-depth, like detailed training stuff. We got to talk some big picture kind of personal stuff and, and big picture, like we are more than just our results and our job title. And I feel like everybody benefits from that. Um, your women seeing you as a leader, um, obviously other coaches hearing that and helping give them maybe something that they needed to hear. So thank you. I really appreciate your time today and I, I value it. And I think a lot of other people will too. Well, thank you. You guys are doing the job of putting more information out there for our sport and it looks different, right? There's so many different ways to do this. So the more diversity we can have, um, I think it's going to make people feel like, you know, their voice matters as well. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Garrett. You've been listening to the Swim Swam podcast. Stay tuned for new episodes every week. You can take Swim Swim Podcast on the go by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. Look for links in the description below and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more videos as well.